From the studios of WHUPLP in Hillsboro, North Carolina, this is Dirty White Belt Radio. Innovative, often duplicated When enough people get on the trend I elevate it, make it way harder For them to follow what I take It hard to swallow like a lozenger Lodged in your trachea Goodness gracious, bruh, I can never make this up So just take your stuff Rake it up and take the bus Never fake the funk, you painted skunks You played enough, I'm lifting bars to outer space So the weight is up Fight, fight A few years back, I got a pretty amazing Christmas gift. Um, a few years back, I got a pretty amazing Christmas present. That Christmas present was a private lesson with any jujitsu instructor in the world that I wanted. Not wanting to abuse the privilege and say, okay, fly me to Brazil and I'll take some privates with someone there, or there's this guy Hicks and Gracie that I hear is pretty good, I started to think about who that instructor might be. And the answer that I came up with was someone who is well-rounded in the grappling arts, who is passionate about jujitsu, and who also isn't just good at it, but is incredibly good at conveying information about jujitsu. So, you know, not just somebody who's an excellent practitioner, but someone who's really put a lot of thought into teaching. And the answer I came up with was this week's guest, Dave Camarillo. That was back in 2014. I had trained with Dave in 2011. He was one of the first jujitsu seminars that I took. And my mind was blown by Dave's ability to convey information in a way that was easy to understand and yet also complex and would continue to yield benefits over the years. So I took a ton of notes every time I got to train with Dave. And from time to time, I would go back and look at those notes. And it was kind of like I had taken an additional seminar, to be honest. So that was the answer that I came up with. Well, Dave Camarillo came back to North Carolina uh, to teach a seminar at Gracie Raleigh and to teach a series of privates this past weekend, and we were lucky enough to get Dave on the podcast. I think you're really going to enjoy this featured interview when we get to it. Before we do, i got to let you know how to get a hold of the show and how to communicate with us. You can always get at us on Twitter and Instagram. Our Twitter is DWB Radio and our Instagram is Dirty White Belt. You can also email the show at cagesidewhup at gmail.com. If you want to talk to us about future guests, if you have a question for an upcoming show, then please feel free to get a hold of us. We love hearing from listeners, and the show's about you, so we want to make it as useful as we possibly can. But before we get into all that, we want to get to the news segment, because there's a lot of things going on. First, I want to mention this. If you've ever been interested in interning for a podcast, there's a spot open. Our beloved intern, Chris, is a full-time college student now, and we would love it if we had somebody that was able to enter items into the calendar, was able to do a little audio editing, schedule interviews, or anything like that. So if you're interested in volunteering for your friendly neighborhood jiu-jitsu podcast, please hit us up at cagesidewhup at gmail.com. So as most of you know, the show focuses on jiu-jitsu in the Carolinas and beyond, and we're going to go beyond for the first item, but also stay in the Carolinas. What do I mean by that? Well, the Pan American, which is one of the most prestigious jiu-jitsu tournaments in the world and takes place at the Walter Pyramid in Long Beach, California, is going to be coming up in just a couple weeks. In preparation for that, a lot of our folks from North Carolina that are traveling out there are having an open mat to prepare. That open mat is going to be March 11th, and it's going to be at Chapel Hill Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. From 2 to 4 p.m., that's going to be a woman-only open mat because a lot of our lady competitors are going to be going out there uh, to choke and submit. Um, From 4 to 6, though, it's going to be a co-ed open mat. So at Chapel Hill Gracie Jiu-Jitsu, March 11th, sometime between 2 and 6, you can get some good training in and help your friends prepare for the pans. So let's go out there and support those folks on their way out there. 
the following weekend is U.S. Grappling Virginia Beach. You're going to hear a lot about U.S. Grappling on the show, uh, our favorite tournament organization, and that's your next opportunity to compete. So if you're anywhere near Virginia Beach on March 18th, that tournament is coming up. The following weekend, there are two seminars, uh, one of which I played a role in and one of which I don't want to miss. On March 24th, Tiago Hocha is coming to Lucas Laprie BJJ Raleigh, which is Tony Cascarez's school. A lot of you know Tony, a uh, tremendously positive influence on the local scene, black belt, tr- super good jujitsu. He's going out to compete at the Pans as well, so hopefully uh, Tony brings home some, some hardware from that. And he'll come back and host Tiago Hocha for a seminar on March 24th. So if you're interested in that, uh, definitely mark your calendar. We're going to put that up on the calendar on our website, dirtywhitebelt.com as well. The following day, and I'm very excited about this, Seth Smith from Upstream BJJ in Richmond, Virginia, is going to come down for a no-gi leg lock seminar at Elevate MMA. Now, Seth is outstanding. A lot of you folks know him uh, either personally or you know him because uh, you know he was Ryan Hall's first black belt. A lot of you know him for his penchant for sloths and other amazing creatures. But you should know him um, for his jiu-jitsu skills, including but not limited to leg locks. Uh, Seth's good at everything. He's amazing at arm triangles. I've had the, the the luck to train with him a couple times over the years, but I first took a, a no-gi leg lock seminar from Seth back in 2012, and a lot of the concepts that he um, taught are still things that I try and use today as I try to become less, uh, less flaily at leg locks. So I couldn't be more excited uh, to go train with Seth. That's March 25th at Elevate MMA. You can pre-register for that. And, uh, and I would encourage you to do so. If you haven't had the, the opportunity to train with Seth, super technical, really fun to train with, uh, does some, has a, just a really deep understanding of leg locks and has finished just a ton of matches with these. These are also leg locks that I don't think you're going to see everywhere. He's going to show you all the, the, the sort of standard leg locks as well. But um, I, I was really impressed and I couldn't be more excited uh, to learn from Seth Smith on March 25th. Hey, Jeff Shaw. Yes. Can you tell me about the longest submission-only match you have ever personally witnessed? So the longest submission-only match I've witnessed in person was more than an hour, and it was between Steve Hall and Nakapon. And it was this epic match between these two guys that have both been black belts a long time, both extremely technical, both mentally tough. And it was a war of attrition where I just don't even understand the emotional resources that those guys had. It was awesome. Nakapon ended up winning. And what makes this stand out in my mind is a lot of times, if a guy has a match that's more than an hour he'll be done for the rest of the day but Steve was in one of those brackets where he had another tough black belt Jay Quitfield up next and instead of copping out Steve went and did his next match even though he just rolled for more than an hour with a beast so props to Steve memorable match for sure man well if you guys want to catch some cool submission only action our friends and sponsors, U.S. Grappling, are having a submission-only tournament in Raleigh on July 29th at the Raleigh Convention Center. And you can find the full schedule at usgrappling.com. We'll see you there. You know, nothing gives me greater pleasure than answering jujitsu etiquette questions. And fortunately, I have my very own white belt who often has said questions for me. Betsy, do you happen to have any jujitsu etiquette questions you've been wondering about? Jeff, I am so glad you asked. Recently, I attended my first open mat that wasn't at our home gym, Triangle Jiu-Jitsu. And um, it occurred to me that I don't know how to politely decline to roll with somebody Or if there's a particular way one should politely decline to roll with somebody. If you don't know them and you aren't sure whether they're safe. I'm a new white belt. I'm spazzy, but I'm worried about getting hurt too. Mm -hmm. Tell them you have a ringworm. (laughs) No. (laughs) 
<laughs> no, not really. Uh, in all seriousness, I firmly believe that everybody should be able to decline a role at any time, uh, even if you just get a sketchy vibe off someone or if you don't know them. I think, you know, this is a consensual activity and specifically because jujitsu is so physically taxing and such an, a physically intimate sport, I think it's very important that there be norms where you don't have to do anything that you don't want to do. Sort of the beauty of the tap. You, if you're having a bad time, you can tap out at any given time. And I think that should happen even before the roll. I think this should be true at pretty much every level of jujitsu, with barring a few extenuating circumstances, but especially at white belt, and especially when you're in a place that you don't feel familiar. And, you know, most places that, that I've been, everybody's great. Like the jiu-jitsu community is full of really cool people, really cool, tough people that will, you know, put you through uh, the ringer if you if you want to roll hard with them. But for the most part, you're going to have good experiences. But, you know, I'm a firm believer in trusting your instincts. So as far as how to be polite about that, just saying, hey, I'm going to sit this one out and then actually sitting the round out, I think is probably probably good just to help both folks sort of save face. Honesty, it does not mean full disclosure. And so even if you think if, if someone has a bad reputation and that's why you don't want to roll with them, like maybe somebody has a reputation as a dangerously spazzy person, or maybe somebody just has, you know, maybe somebody smells bad. You don't want to necessarily say, nah, dude, you got to wash that ghee. There's a time and a place for that too. But, but if you just want to kind of be nice about it, the easiest way is just say, no, nah, I'm, I'm sitting this one out, but thank you. And, you know, if they hit you up later, um, I think it's probably appropriate to continue in that vein. And eventually, if they're socially adept at all, they get the message. Right. Or you can always tell them you have ringworm. <laughs> Our featured interview today is brought to you by Toro Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Company. Toro BJJ produces the highest quality gis, rash guards, and grappling supplies for every Brazilian jiu-jitsu practitioner. You can check them out online at torobjj.com. Our thanks to Toro Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu for making our featured interview possible. So let's get to it. So it's time for our featured interview with Dave Camarillo. I want to thank a couple of people first. First, I want to thank my instructor, Seth Champ, um, for hosting Dave at his academy back in 2011 when I first got the chance to train with Dave as a pretty new white belt, and it really opened my mind to a lot of the possibilities of jiu-jitsu. I also want to thank Jason Culbreth, who is a black belt world champion who's been here on the show, just won the Masters Worlds this past year. And I want to say some things about Jason, which is it's, it's amazing to me for how much he's accomplished both in jiu-jitsu and in MMA and helping bring MMA back to the Carolinas, uh, how underrated he is and how few people really, I think, understand Jason Culbreth's technical understanding of jiu-jitsu and the martial arts and how that technical um, understanding continues to progress. So, like, all you guys that get to train with Jason every day, you're super lucky. And if you have three free privates with Jason Culbreth uh, and you haven't used them, you're an idiot. That's me. I have three free privates with Jason Culbreth because I did some photography work for him one time and haven't used them yet. The lesson, as always, you shouldn't listen to me. But you should listen to Jason and to Dave Camarillo. So we did this interview after I had a private with Dave um, where Jason was there as his UK. And it was... Uh, it was an amazing thing for many reasons. One of the things you'll hear, I, I mentioned this by way of introduction, that you'll hear Dave and Jason sort of busting on each other in a hilarious fashion during the interview. And I think you'll find that as, as amusing as I did. One thing I said to the guys, um, not at all facetiously, was I should have just put the audio recorder down during the private and just just knitted together, like forget the technical details of jiu-jitsu, forget the, hey, here's how you do my favorite throws, hey, here's how you do these particular sweeps, and just edited together Dave and Jason making fun of each other. And I think that would have been an amazing show. So maybe next time Dave comes through, 
In all seriousness, though, uh, Dave and Jason are two of the most technical guys I know, two of the most knowledgeable guys that I know. And so I'm very fortunate uh, to have gotten to train with them. And I was even more fortunate, I think, to get this interview with Dave Camarillo, who, if you're out in California, anywhere near the Guerrilla Jiu-Jitsu Academy, you got to go out and train with Dave. So I want to thank Jason for bringing Dave out. I want to thank Dave for taking the time. And I want to thank you for listening to this podcast, which I hope you enjoy as much as I enjoyed doing it. So welcome back to North Carolina, Dave. Thanks, man. Yeah, I appreciate it. This is awesome. Love being here. Been here. How long have I been here? Been coming down? Years. Years. Like 12 years? 15 years? Something like that? Love this area. Duke, bro. Duke. No? All right. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> so we just finished a private lesson, and I'm really grateful to you for making the time for that. Are private lessons something you enjoy compared to group classes, or do, what is the distinction that you see between those? Uh, with my personality, I need to mix it up. So I like doing everything I do. So, and everything, you know, has a different format. So if I teach a class at my school, depends on the class, whether it's kids, adults, it has a different feel to it, whether I'm teaching our combatives class, self-defense, sport class, a little bit different feel to it. Generally, the framework is the same. When you switch to private lessons, it's please direct me. That's kind of my thought process going in. But at the same time, I can uh, lead somebody that says, oh, I just want to learn basics, you know what I mean? So I'll put them on some basics of our curriculum or something like that, but it definitely is private time. It's what you want. You're the, you're the boss. And I like that. I like being, I like leading and being led. So I, I like the contrast in that respect. Seminar is a little bit more of a presentation. It's a package deal there. So for example, when I teach over here, I, I'm going to bring out my uh, Kimura series. I've been teaching that a lot in the last few years, but it's refined. I think uh, some of the people who haven't seen it, I'd like them to see it. Um, but I enjoy all of those and the clients, whether it's military, uh, regular clients, you know, that, that have nine to five jobs that just love jujitsu. To me, that's also a contrast. Um, so I like, and I've written, written probably like 300 curriculums. And the curriculum, in terms of writing it, I have to know the client, know exactly how much time they have allotted in terms of their investment for, for training, and then I have to adapt to that. Uh, and I find that fascinating because, again, it's, it's different all the time. Uh, we have set curriculums, but I think set curriculums have their place, but I think an evolving, constantly catered curriculum to a specific situation or individual or age group or you know law enforcement or whatever wh- whoever they are, I find that uh, uh, fascinating as well. And, and just reaching, I would say, I'm going off on a tangent, but reaching that perfect kind of balance of what they need, because that's, I work for them. They don't work for me. I work for them. So you mentioned you've written over 300 curriculums, and I really admire teachers that put that kind of thought into not just accumulating the information, but conveying it. But when we did our private lesson just now, like you had no idea what I wanted to ask you about when I walked in. And so I'm wondering, is that difficult for you? Or is that something that you enjoy sort of the, the, the challenge of doing something impromptu? Or is it even not a challenge for you? It's not a challenge, but I, I prepare. So, and there's two types of, uh, I would say, you step back a little bit, but there's, there's being very prepared, and I write a curriculum, and then there's winging it. And the more prepared you are, the better you are at winging it, if that makes sense. So winging it is like you could open that door right now, and there could be 30 people, and they go teach a seminar, and I'll wing it. You know what I mean? Like, oh, what do they like? And I get a tiny bit of information, I'll wing it. Or I'm coming in to teach a course, People sign up for a course. They show up and I teach a course. I just taught a course from uh, some of the work I just did. Uh, 
that's me presenting it and I'm the teacher and the curriculum's already written and I've prepared and I've seen what's out there and I've cut the fat, which is essentially a process where you, uh, uh, cutting the fat is like, how do I get to the point? If I have all this material, I need to get to the point. I can't have all this fluff. Fluff to me sometimes gets in the way. But then you have nerds that want all the fluff in the world. So it depends on who's in front of me. So. That makes perfect sense. So over the years, uh, you know, you talked a little bit about how you, it, you know, it, when we did the private lesson, you talked a little bit about how your game has changed over the years. And I'm wondering, has your teaching style changed over the years as well? Or like, has your focus shifted in terms of yourself as a practitioner versus yourself as a teacher? Uh, how has that, how has that evolved for you? Well, I think, I think the presentation is just as important as the material. The material is good. I mean, I, I always, because I'm constantly innovating and refining, I'm, I'm proud of what I produce, but it's not for me to judge, it's for the client to judge. Um, uh, how, how, how have I changed? I think I've, my presentation's gotten a little bit stronger. I'm more in depth with uh, how I answer questions. But again, there's, there's a time and place for that. If I need to get through something, I only point out the major details. I have my, my students uh, or, or the client drill until I see a failure that's kind of across the board, and then I'll address that failure, which is essentially just reiterating the principle of the position or something like that. Uh, and then we sharpen that out. So I try to just be a good coach and keep people in the same line in terms of you know doing smooth techniques, smooth transitions, good material. Um, one thing, though, I'll point out is I don't teach something that I don't do. Everything I teach, I do. And if I'm working on something that I traditionally don't do, it's like tomatoes. I used to hate tomatoes. I forced myself to like it. So every single thing you see me teach, I do. I'm not going to sit there and go online, pick out some move, and then teach it to someone else as if I own it. I don't own that. That's somebody else's. It could be the same work, but if I use it, I use it. And if I don't, I don't. If I don't, I'm not going to teach it. I refuse. Uh, that may change, but I don't see it changing. Does that make sense? Like I don't, it doesn't make any sense unless I have confidence in it and I can get somebody in this thing, you know, like Kimura series. That's my number one bread and board, butter in terms of finishing people. I'm going to teach a Kimura package, which is essentially a seminar. So you mentioned that you'll let folks drill until you see failure. How do you deal with a client like me that fails constantly over and over yeah, repeatedly in, in embarrassing fashion? You know what I'm going to say though. You did outstanding today. Like I was extremely impressed and I'm like, do you train with Jason? Because if you do, I'm, I'm shocked that you, <laughs> that you did so well. You know what I mean? I don't expect that from his students at all. Uh, <laughs> if you guys know anything about me and Jason, you know it's, we're, we're, it's all in good fun. I'm 100% serious. But anyway, moving on. Uh, you did outstanding. Like, really. Like, I showed you Tomonagi today, for example. You're like, hey, show me some sacrifice throws. Tomonagi is in judo is, and jiu-jitsu is essentially uh, pulling guard uh, with the – initial intent to, th to throw your opponent. Uh, you can even call it a sweep. It's just a quick guard pull. But you did outstanding. I do a little angle, like a corkscrew angle on my Tobinagi. I force them into Ukemi, and you did outstanding doing that. Um, all jokes aside, though, you, I was very impressed. We got through a lot, though. So, But it, when you say a lot, so for example, make sure you get those details down. You, I can say we worked on two moves, and we went through a lot as well. Because the details are, like, super important. You understand what I'm talking about. But you're on a level where you can cover a lot of ground and still, you know, maintain the integrity of, of the details and technique. 
So let's talk about, you, you mentioned that you don't teach things that you don't do. And I think that's really wise practice. For one thing, I mean, you know it better, you're confident in it. How has your, what you do changed over the years as, you know, we're all getting older. And I'm wondering, like, has your game, you know, you used to do a ton of flying techniques or at least teach them. And so I would ask, how would you describe how your game has evolved and how you roll today as opposed to how you rolled a few years ago? So... I still do the flying attacks. I'm just very calculated. I mean, obviously, I don't want to just jump. I used to jump kind of carefree. Like, when you're young, like, oh, I can, I can do anything I want and I could hurt. And traditionally, that was true. I, I never really hurt myself jumping. But uh, I do. it's weird. I do 50-50 now. And traditionally, I, I used to be kind of against it because it's generally for stalling. It's You know, it kind of is across the board, even though there's some magnificent practitioners that use it. Uh, as an aggressive system, but a lot of it is to slow things down. Well, that's exactly what I need as I get older. So Nogi uses it really, really well with the leg locks and things like that. But traditionally, it's used many times as a stalling uh, position. Uh, And I I have trouble with stalling, and I still do. I think there's, like, as, as I get older, you would think I've slowed down, but... I mean, I was getting my buddy ready, Danny, one of our instructors, ready for a tournament, and literally I got in t- tournament shape. And it was just one of these weird things where, I, you know, I get busy, but, like, I was in town a lot at the time. Good timing, essentially, but got in really good shape, really kind of alpha, just mindset, just really strong, really, um, for me, again, for me, not saying I'm strong, just, but really good conditioning. I was out conditioning young guys who were getting ready for comps um, with no intention to compete at all, but really good conditioning. And so the more I did that, I think it chemically, it did, did something to me. I, I wasn't moving relaxed. I was not hurting myself. I was still being calculated, but going really, really aggressive, really hard. Uh, then I slowed down a little bit and got a little work. I was really busy with some work. Training kind of goes down a little bit. Uh, and then I just discovered 50-50. And I found that when I do that and I, my conditioning starts going down a little bit, I, I, I tend to relax. Um, but I think uh, tip-top A game, I can shift between relaxation and then full-on just ballistic, right? And I think that's a good spectrum to understand it and utilize. Um, so how much has changed? I'm just more calculated, you know, and I, I, I need to warm up. So the first 30 minutes of me rolling is me getting destroyed. When I warm up about 30 minutes in, good, good sweat, you know, lubricated, ready to go, and then I can, I can, I can go pretty hard. I still go really hard. But it's gonna it's gonna change. You know what I mean? Like, imagine me in ten years. Um, it has. To, so the idea is like it's a s- slow shift to be more efficient and find a satisfying role. I think that's the main thing I need to focus on. Find a satisfying role because it used to be destroy everything in front of me. Well, you're not gonna be able to do that because a lot of your students are getting really really good. There's some tough guys in, in our in our schools, um, and I've long gone through a process of being okay losing especially now that I need a warm-up. So I lose for the first half hour, and I think that's good for me. So you mentioned one of the secrets to longevity, which is just, you know, your approach, like doing the techniques differently, maybe exploring different techniques. But I'm wondering if you have, are there other things that are sort of secrets to longevity in arts like jiu-jitsu and judo that can be hard on the body? I'm thinking maybe nutrition. I'm thinking, you know, exercise, whatever you think. What do you think are the keys to sustainability in this? I think mindset's number one. Uh, I think I really do. I think diet is, is without a doubt, and my diet has changed the older I get. It's not perfect. Uh, I feel like eating pizza right now, and I'm probably going to later. But I eat pretty decent. 
I have my meals made at times, and then I, I juice a lot. I drink a lot of juice. Um, I'm sorry, when I say juice, the, the like a lot of vegetables, not the sugary uh, fruits so much. Um, but I think, man, I think mindset, man. I think mindset controls everything. So if I go hard and sloppy and get hurt, it, it's my mindset. It's not what I do. It's my mindset. My mindset going in, I have to be realistic. I have to slow things down at times. I can pick things up at times. I got to listen to my body. I got to be wise. I can't be uh, immature. You can't be immature when you're reaching 40, 45. Um, and like Indiana Jones, it's not the age, it's the miles. You know what I mean? Like, so me at 40 is like, you know, but it's weird. Like I have pains and, but I'll still go hard, man. Like the years of Ukami and all that, like, I don't want to do a judo randori, but I'll do jujitsu hard. Um, I still feel really good, but I think, man, it's, it's mindset. Mindset controls how you behave, what's going on inside your head, uh, controls your, your moods and things like that. And I think going back to just what I just said, finding the contentment with a role, finding the satisfaction within a role. I don't want to stop doing that. If I stop doing that, I'm probably dead. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I'm gonna try to hold on to that as long as I can. So we were talking about what you do at Guerrilla Jiu-Jitsu, and what you mentioned that you have many different curricula, include, and we talked a little bit about the Guerrilla Jiu-Jitsu Tachiwaza curriculum. So I'm wondering, when you're formulating, do you start with the mindset of, this is what I want Guerrilla Jiu-Jitsu to be, and then break it out into buckets, all right, here's the self-defense, here's the combatives, here's the sportive elements, or does it all inform each other, or how do you approach a, a comprehensive curriculum? So first, there's, there's a curriculum in our academy. It's a combative curriculum. I think... Uh, I think it's a mistake to only do sport jiu-jitsu. And I used to not even, when I did sport judo, I never thought of the combative applications for judo. Now I have a whole curriculum that is judo for a street fight, you know, an entire curriculum for that. Jiu-jitsu obviously has had that. Uh, ours is something special. I like, you know, obviously pat myself on the back and me and Matt Darcy have worked really hard on it together to collaborate on that. So we think it's something special, but it's it's a strategy, it's tactics to handle one-on-one. Uh, -on -one. Um, we include multiples, but uh, if you can't fight with your jiu-jitsu, I mean, and I'm not trying to uh, sound like Hicks and Gracie or anybody else, but if you can't fight with your jiu-jitsu, you, you, I don't. It, it's it, it's silly to me. And I would even look at myself with my mindset and go back in time and look at and kind of slap myself in the face and I'm like you're very silly. Well, in certain times in your life, you have certain things that you're just preparing for. If you're a hardcore comp competitor, I understand. That's fine. But in the end, I think people are going to start drifting more towards the self-defense applications. Right now, it's like 90% of the schools in the entire country, I don't, I don't know how we judge that, but like our sport schools. And I was talking to somebody the other day, and I'm like, this is a problem of over-civilization. This might sound crazy to people, but we are so civilized that our martial arts have turned into sports. You know, I came to that revelation. I'm sure someone else has too, but it's so civilized. We get whatever we want. You can retire early in life. It's, to be honest, it's pretty – the amount of opportunity we have in the United States is absolutely ridiculous. You know, in terms of world standards, absolutely ridiculous. We have an amazing opportunity in the United States. And it's an easy life for many of us, not all of us, but for many of us. And so naturally, martial arts turn into sports. But I think it's a good thing. It sounds like I think it's a bad thing. It's a good thing. Now there's more people doing it. And you can really see a potential of the human body. 
Like MMA has revolutionized things. BJJ at this point is just unbelievable. But I think as you get older, you know, what's more important? My family or me winning a tournament? Winning some ridiculous medal at the Worlds. Oh, hey, Jason. What's up, man? <laughs> uh, you and Rafa Mendez are world champions? <laughs> like, he's on one side of the spectrum, and you're all the way on the other side. Oh, I love it. But I'm not on the spectrum. I love it. All right, cool. You want to roll? <laughs> I'm going to invite my brother over here, and he's going to throw you on your face. If you're not talking smack in jiu-jitsu to your, your buddies, then you're missing out. Anyway, go ahead. There's a real problem of over-civilization in this room right now. I'm, I'm feeling that. I mean, there's a lot in there I want to follow up on. And I think that's a really, like, I think comprehensive yeah. answer. And, and, and let's start with the self-defense aspects because, uh, you know, you teach, you know, as you mentioned, you teach, you know, judo for street fights. All these things have self-defense applications. Jake Whitfield is one of our black belts out here who's really, yeah. I've known him for a long time. Yeah, oh, great. great yeah. yeah, Jake. Oh, awesome. Uh, well, Jake wanted me to ask you what you think of the original Gracie self-defense program. I think it's evolved. I mean, I think it was great for then. It's like, Everything's evolved, you know. Um, there's curriculums out there that haven't evolved, and I, I definitely question the functionality. Now, you can do Taekwondo and be amazing in self-defense. You won't hear jiu-jitsu people say that because they're constantly selling you jiu-jitsu. I happen to think that for the most part, jiu-jitsu is the most tactical approach, but it is definitely not a complete system. You know, MMA is more complete than jiu-jitsu. I mean, we just got to be honest. Um, there's also certain tactics that don't exist in, in original jiu-jitsu. We'll just say original jiu-jitsu, which is self-defense, what you're referring to. For the time, it's outstanding, but things change. There's certain moves that I see that, for example, I'll just mention one. And I don't mean to like, I'm not bashing anything. It's just like everything's evolved. If I find something in my curriculum, I'll do the same thing with my curriculum and go, oh, that needs to change. And I've done that. That's why I have 300 curriculums. We do have a base standardized curriculum, but we innovate it at least every six months or a year. It will change, even a little bit. It has to. Curriculums that are not changing, there's a problem with them. If they're not innovating, because we don't know everything. I don't know everything. Um, but there's certain moves like the hip throw that we call it Ogoshi in Judo. It's just not taught the way you would teach it in Judo. Well, it stems from Judo. And I think some of the issues are, um, how do I say this? Jiu-Jitsu is the greatest thing in the world. Well, if you have that mentality, there's a problem. I think it's the best martial art in the world, but that doesn't mean it's the greatest thing or it's magic. It's not magic. It's got plenty of faults. Everything has faults. I myself as an instructor have faults. You know, we constantly innovate and try to work on those faults, and then we die. That's, and that's what's cool about it. We get busy with that, and then it's over, and then our, son, our next generation takes over. But there's certain things that I, th that I would definitely change, and I think they're just not uh, – that could be done better. Not wrong. Like I said, you can do taekwondo. You can do, man, you can do any martial art pretty much. I mean, there's some fantasy stuff out there, but you know what I mean? Uh, what – doesn't have value sitting on the couch. <laughs> and I have troubles telling the truth, you know. If you want to learn my system, awesome. 
we will really change your whole world. Your whole worldview will change, not your whole worldview, but we will definitely change the way you understand your place in the world. We will change your uh, understanding of your own abilities. You will learn actually what a real fight entails. All of these things. Uh, and we get to the point, really good, you know, good curriculum. We, we were happy with it. Again, it's going to innovate. Uh, but you can do plenty wrestling. You can do, you know, judoka, you know. Uh, there's so many things out there that are good. So my point is, is if you don't like any jiu-jitsu schools, I mean, I like jiu-jitsu, right? If you don't like any jiu-jitsu schools in your area, do something else. That's totally fine, as long as you're training. That actually dovetails really well with your answer about civilization and opportunity in America here compared to world, and I would add world historical standards, right? Like, like now life is better now than it, than it has ever been. And I think, like, what I liked about your answer is that, you know, you, you are – open about both the benefits of competition and its drawbacks in that like should you only do sport martial arts probably not right depending on what your goals are but is that better than sitting on the couch absolutely and one thing that that, that I notice is that as martial arts evolve, like it, it's related to people's goals, right? Like before, you know, in the day, like at almost any other time in history, you would need to protect yourself or you would die. And the, and you know, and to a certain extent that's still, yeah, right. Well, yeah. I mean, so many different, in so many different locations around the world. Yeah, no, exactly. In many, in some places it's still true. And like, obviously there's relative levels of risk and things like that, but like, you know, there, there are so many other benefits to martial arts, I also agree with what you said about it's better that more people are doing it now than ever before. And so, because now you have fewer people dying of heart disease, fewer people that are, you know, with the problems of, of obesity and sure. things like that. It's one yeah. of the, the real benefits of jujitsu. And like, obviously, I am a, I'm an obsessive jujitsu person. And so people always expect me to be like, you should only do jujitsu. And I'm like, no, the stuff that you should do is the stuff you love because that's the stuff you'll do. Right. And like, obviously, I want you to try jujitsu because I think. Most people, I think everyone should train, and then I think most people will fall in love with it. But, like, you know, if somebody really loves Muay Thai or, or wrestling or, like, okay, you know, do something. Um, so, on, on that score, like, uh, wow, where I, I just no, I just rambled. It's run. No, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> that, this, is why you, this is why you were, I like teaching you. I, I, I'm, no offense at all, you're a jiu-jitsu nerd, just like me. Mm-hmm. And that, uh, this thing is a good thing. It's just how we interpret these these words. You know, some people get offended for certain things and waste their time, and then other people go, "No, I'm proud of. <laughs> call me whatever you want. I'm proud of it." Um, and if it's not true, why am I offended? Uh, so the idea is, you're a jiu-jitsu nerd. I'm a jiu-jitsu nerd, or at least a martial arts nerd. I don't like to pigeonhole myself. I've studied so many different things. Do I think jiu-jitsu is the best? Yes. Um, but I, I take that sense after not just doing jujitsu. You know what I mean? Like it's a little bit different than, than I hear a lot. But uh, yeah, it's the greatest martial art in the world. I, I trained recently with a guy who uh, is uh, paralyzed at the hip. You know, he can use his arms and paralyze at the hip. He does jujitsu. He kimoed me. He choked me. You, you, you can anyone can do you know to a certain extent degree. Most anybody can do jujitsu. It's it's amazing. It's, you know, I'm talking to somebody who understands it. If you're not doing jiu-jitsu and you're listening to this, just try it. Just try it. And then if you go in and they're they're jerks, go to somewhere else. Because there's, you know what I mean? Like, and not to, there's people who still struggle with presenting jiu-jitsu to all, in, you know, inclusive. So I hear a lot of people when they go to certain academies, it's like, it's intimidating. You go to an intimidating academy, go to somewhere else. You know what I mean? Like, go to Cary. 
You know what I mean? Like, uh, go train with Jason. There's just amazing love in this academy. So like, uh, it's out there. Just go find it. U.S. Grappling is our favorite tournament organization for a lot of reasons. Run by grapplers for grapplers, U.S. Grappling consistently provides the best tournament experience for competitors. Whether it's a points tournament or submission only, and U.S. Grappling runs true no time limit submission only events, it's the best place to compete and to watch your friends compete. Check out upcoming events and register online at usgrappling.com. So, over or under 1,000, how many times since Jason won the World Championships would you, would you say he has mentioned the World Championship? I would have started at two, 2,000. You know, I wouldn't have started at 1,000. Um, don't go to Vegas anytime soon. You're way off, bro. <laughs> oh, Jason. I'm so, you know what? I, I swear I'm so glad to be here. I gave you a big hug. I mean, I don't really like you, but it's just like I felt you needed it. You know what I mean? You, you kind of look like you needed it. Um, no, I'm not sleeping with your medal tonight. No, I'm not. Anyway, <laughs> that's all I got. <laughs> so one thing about like, but on the topic of competition, like, uh, do you think everybody should compete or at least try competing? You know, because from my perspective, um, eat, well, nobody cares about my perspective, at least not so much as yours, but, but, uh, I think there are benefits to competition in terms of the, the, um, you know, when we're rolling in the academy, these are people that know you, that are invested in you. There's, I think, value in stepping across from someone that you have no idea whether they're a black belt in judo, whether they wrestled, whether they're just a random person that's scared. Like, so do you think that most or all people should at least try competing? No. Because what do you, the real question is, should be people be tested? Yes. Sparring is testing. Everyone should at least spar to some degree. That's where it stops. Most of my students do not compete at all. We test them, though. Um, I think there's benefits, but that, that doesn't... There's benefits to getting hurt. <laughs> it doesn't mean I want you to get hurt. You know what I'm saying? Like, I tore my bicep, and I'm much smarter with me and understanding and conceding that I'm aging. And there's certain things I need to do. Stretch, warm up. There's certain things I need to do. Um the experience definitely helped me. It doesn't mean I'm hoping Jason gets hurt so that he's a smarter individual, even though he's getting hurt all the time. <laughs> we'll see, man. Um, do you understand my point? Like, yeah, there's benefits, but that doesn't mean everyone needs those benefits because uh, there's also risk and there's also a detriment involved. Nothing is just good. You know what I mean? There's no. I don't think there's a such thing as it's just good for you. I can't think of something that's only good. You know what I mean? Like, like you're only a Sith deals in absolutes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I don't deal in absolutes. Uh, I try not to. So I think there's there's some detriment to competing. It's very stressful. I don't compete. I'll tell you right now because I'm it's stressing me out, and I just don't need that in my life. And my good friends and family don't need that because I I change. I turn into <laughs> Doctor Jekyll. Or, sorry, Mr. Hyde. Right? Yeah. Okay, yeah, okay. Yes, correct. Um, so, I, no, not at all. I think people need to be tested, though. And there's a but here's the thing. There's a lot of jiu-jitsu competitors that haven't been tested, like, in the self-defense arena. Uh, it's easy to go compete, but it's like, I'm not saying go get in a fight, but have you been through a test of your self-defense prowess? 
99% would say no, even in self-defense jiu-jitsu schools. Uh, so, no, I don't think people need to compete. I'm glad I did um, because I know what it's like at a high level. Uh, and it's my livelihood. So when you, when I have a conversation, a conversation with Jason, we know what it's like to compete. And it's different than if I have a conversation with someone who doesn't compete. That's a different conversation. And that's not disrespect. It's an experience that they don't have. They can say, I think this, and that's cool. And then I can say, well, in my experience, well, I was a competitor. Jason is a world champion. You know what I mean? Like, we've been in the trenches. We've gone through the stress. We've sacrificed. We've broken our bodies down. We've loved and hated every minute of it. You know what I mean? I think the, that's a much better principle, the broader principle of being tested, because that's really, you know, most of the benefits of the competition come from that, right? Which is why it's stressful. It's like, I'm about to face this, this hard test. And so I'm wondering... Uh, do you have do you have memories of some of your toughest days of training? And do you look back on those with fondness? Do you look back on those with I'm glad I went through that, but I'm glad it's over? And do you have any stories from those times? Uh, I think if I didn't start my career, I would have been addicted to training hard, and I would still train hard at like San Jose State Judo. Uh, it because the hard training. Uh, yeah, in the beginning, I mean, I, there was times I hated it, but the hard training became something I've needed and I still need it. I don't get it as much as I think I need it, but uh, I still need it. I'll set times where I close the door, grab John Barsotti, who's a 220-pound world champion, black belt, put Slayer on and blast it, and then try to destroy him. And when he taps me, I get up and then I try to destroy him. And then when he taps me again, I get up and I try to destroy him. When he's mounted on top of me, smashing me, he locks up my body with his legs and essentially triangles my legs and drives his weight forward and I can barely breathe. I don't tap until he submits me. And when he submits me, I get up and I try to smash him again. And that's something I think that's been instilled because of the hard training. So when you say, do I, I mean, there were times where I didn't like my father. There were times when I didn't like my coaches. I wish I had a clearer head, a little bit more maturity. Those are the things I look back on that's a little bit embarrassing. But like I said, there's almost no such thing as a bad experience. I mean, there are bad experiences. There's terrible experiences in this world. But when you go through something as trivial as that, it's not a bad experience. It's a good experience because I'm learning from it and I'm adjusting to it and it becomes a guide for me. So I would rather look at those things as learning experiences. And I just look at my behavior and I go, man, that's embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> let me uh, let me have a school, which is what we have now, where people respect each other and we don't have attitudes like I used to have. You know what I mean? Not that it was terrible, but it was a very selfish uh, c competitor attitude and uh, I could have done better. You know what I mean? Those are the things I wish I uh, could have changed, but I don't lose sleep over it. I went to a buddy. Oh, here's a story. So I went to a buddy, my buddy Jose, and I'm like, it's like I sat down and go, hey, man, I, I'm kind of apologizing for how I was at, like, at San Jose State because I was, a, I was crazy. Like I, I would train so hard, and I had to win every exchange. It was, I was very competitive. Um, and he goes, Dave, you pushed us. You brought it every day. That's what he remembers. 
so I kind of get up. You get a lot of guys get passes. We've seen this in MMA, right, Jason? Like you're training a guy and he just upsets everyone in the academy, but you still love him because he has heart. You know what I'm saying? It's like it's just one of those things that you wish he had a better attitude. But dang, on a certain level, you respect him. Um, I think we all wish to have that balance, but but it's hard for me to turn away from somebody that's just, you know, I butted heads with guys at AKA, and I I love them to death still. And I butted head, heads with them verbally and physically, meaning punch in the face, thrown against the wall, bleeding nose, I'm choking him, he's punching me in the head. And then verbal arguments. You know what I mean? Those are the, that's, but what do I remember? I don't care about the arguments. It's stupid. The sparring is what mattered. The training, the whole iron sharpens iron. That's the most important part out of it. You know what I mean? So, anyway. I have a follow-up that I don't know the answer to, and I would really be interested to hear this, because, like, Hearing you describe that training experience, I have experiences like that. And I do think there's incredible value. When I started, I was the smallest, worst guy at the gym. Got killed every night for months and months and months and months. And it was great for me. And sometimes it was tough, but it was uh, very much like you described, where get crushed, go back, try to destroy the guy. Get crushed, go back, try to destroy the guy. And now that, uh, you know, that I'm older and there are younger folks coming up, it's actually difficult for me to watch that, that happen to them, which is a strange experience. It's something where I would never, I look back on my experience with fondness and gratefulness to my instructors, to all my training partners. I'm like, man, I'm so glad you guys crushed me every night. But I see this happen to another human, somebody, maybe it's a, somebody that is yeah, a friend or whatever, and it's actually difficult for me to watch. Do, right. you, do you have that experience? Yeah. I mean, we, we control things, man. We... The atmosphere I've created with Gorilla and me and Matt have created with Gorilla is is everyone should be there to help each other. Like it's it's really like we don't there's nobody in there crushing, smashing unless it's a mutual like, okay, I agreed to, to do this. And I tell them. I go, it's okay. Because we have certain like training times where you know it's not really class time, it's training time. Everyone knows where they come in and roll. Uh we call it marathon roll. We sorry, I created Marathon roll. I don't care what anybody says. Because everyone's, you know, anyway. Uh, pat myself on the back right there. Here's the story. You ready? Years ago, I, I came in AK and I was in a bad mood. And I go, guys, just roll. Five minutes on, one minute off. Ten rounds. What? What? Roll. Five minutes on, one minute off. You guys got it? I'll set the clock go. Marathon roll. So we do marathon roll. And I love it. People love it. A lot of people there rolling. And uh, I tell him, I go, after I go, look, you may see me, and I'm art- I, I think it's okay to be a caveman at times, but articulate it to people. Make sure you're, everyone there understands what you're doing. You know what I'm saying? Like, I go, hey, guys, you know me, and if you don't know me, let me explain. At times, I will pick it up, and I'm going to push myself. Marathon roll, that's okay as long as, as long as it's mutual between you and them, meaning their body can handle it, and they're totally okay with banging heads with you, physically. So as long as you articulate that, I think that's that's awesome. I want to talk to you briefly about your own podcast, uh, the Position Impossible podcast. Uh, it's a great listen. Anybody listening, I would encourage you to check it out. I'm just wondering about your goals for that, because is this the sort of thing that you thought consciously, this is a business thing I want to do, or this is a 
part of my goals are to impart knowledge to people who want to hear my knowledge? Or is it just something that's fun for you to talk about this sort of thing with other people who are passionate about it like you are? I think it's, I think it's all those things, but at the, ver- at the least, it's a business thing. So business thing is essentially to create an audience that may jump in on a seminar, may have a, an affiliation request, because we do hint on, I'm not going to talk about our programs exactly what's going on, going on uh, goes on there. I, I'm not as transparent as some, some of the things out there. We're not putting videos about what we do, exactly what we do. We want certain things to be surprised. But it's a great atmosphere. It's two successful academies, uh, Pleasanton and San Jose. So it's a little bit of, here's some content, and we do get business from it. We'll get affiliate requests or uh, seminars or private lessons, or it's just something fun for people. We try to make it good. Um, it's not a huge priority to do one every single week or twice a week. It's, it's, I don't think it's ever going to be that way. Um, but we're consistent. We keep, we keep nudging away at it, sometimes two a month, sometimes three a month or whatever. Um, and there's just some things that I have an opinion about. So I want to – the other thing is practice. I'm practicing, you know, podcasts. I didn't know how to podcast, so I started a podcast, you know, that kind of thing. The whole Tim Ferriss, hey, if I don't know how to do it, I'm going to invite somebody on my show that's going to teach me how to do it, or I'm just going to go out and find somebody and do it. So I think, uh, you know, I did a lot of interviews when I was highly involved with UFC and all that, with AK and all that. And I'm like, well, those just stopped after I kind of just did my own thing. And uh, it's a way of for me just to, just to talk and get my feelings out, my thoughts out. I never listen to it. I just do it. Matt edits it and then I'm done. Um, yeah, it's just kind of fun. It's not a it's not a money maker. It's just for fun. One of my favorite episodes of the podcast. You're having your arm worked on while you're while, while I think it's Matt asking you questions or maybe philosopher yeah, going, yeah. going back and forth. Yeah. How did, did was that a spontaneous thing where you're just like oh, let's just do it now or did you plan it out that like this is going to happen when this is happening? Yeah, so I try to be creative. I try to have themes, and then I try to have guests here and there. You know, I like themes. I come in with kind of an idea of what, what I want to do. And that just popped in my head. I tore my bicep, and right after I tore it, I'm like, let's do a podcast. I'm going to have my buddy, Robert, who's outstanding. He, I, he, he's my trainer uh, for lifting and, 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 and stretching and all that. And he was working on my arm, and he was obviously torn. Uh, went to the doctor, and they're like, yeah, you're going to need surgery. He didn't... He didn't even do the MRI at that point. He did it later, but I'm like, really? He touches my arm and he goes, yeah, you need surgery. I'm like, that's, that's fishy, bro. <laughs> I mean, I have no problem saying it too. It's like, to me, that's super fishy. Uh, I never got surgery. I lifted a week later or a few days later, really light lifting. Uh, but uh, I'm in pain the entire... And I'm, I got to make a joke about it. Like if I have a tattoo, like I had a couple tattoos done and I'm like, is that all you got? You know, I think it's not like I'm tough. It's just like, there's two ways to do this. Like if I'm having a tattoo or somebody working on it, I can sit there and go, oh, this hurts. Or I can go, are you okay? Is your fingers okay that are digging into my injury? Are you okay? I'm worried about you. I think that's a good mentality just, just to be tough, you know, kind of verbal and just attitude wise. If you could give one piece of advice in terms of mental training or developing mental toughness to somebody who's listening to this podcast, uh, what would that be? Quit complaining. Stop being overly sensitive. There's so many overly sensitive people in our in our society. It's absolutely ridiculous. There's a, there's to me that's immaturity. Or if you do it later in life, it's actually a should be called a condition. Um 
you don't need to be cauliflower-ear, tough-guy MMA fighter. But sitting there complaining about things that, in reality, you don't have a lot of control over is an absolute waste of time. It actually makes the situation worse. I talked about this, about uh, the desensitization in one of my podcasts. And I think, you know, you can use jiu-jitsu as an analogy. Like, we get desensitized to the mount, for example. Well, when somebody's arguing with you, like, part of this is maturity, but, like, you can utilize some of that as long as you've been, it's been articulated to you. But, like, I guess somebody who goes, it goes yada, yada, yada that I totally disagree with. Cool. I'm going to go over here. Like, it's cool. I'm, we live in America. I love how everyone has different opinions. Great. If we didn't have that, we'd have trouble. But you can't make me feel bad about myself, <laughs> you know, because I'm not, I, I'm not offended by what you say. So the idea is like, I remember, uh, I know, you know, Maynard James Keenan. So I'm going to relate this to that. So try to keep me on track. I haven't had much sleep today, but try to keep me on track. I was talking to Maynard. And I talked to Maynard like he's a normal guy. He's my friend. Uh, and I told him, yeah, I met James Heffield, and I was a little starstruck. I admitted to him. And he goes, Dave, don't give them that power. Don't give somebody that power. And I'm thinking, I'm like, it's James Heffield. And I'm like, you're right. Why do I treat him different than I would treat Maynard? Well, it's a little bit different. I've known Maynard. He does jiu-jitsu. Maybe if James Heffield did jiu-jitsu. He was super cool. I had a whole conversation with James randomly, just random. Went up to him, talked to him. He's like, don't give those people that power. And I'm like, it was one of those times where I'm like, kind of like a dumb moment. Like, you're right. Why was I? Because I think you should be able to be hard on yourself a little bit and be embarrassed by your behavior. Because if you're not, you're going to keep doing the same stuff over and over. So I was embarrassed at myself. Not other people. Not things I can't control. And so I think when people are overly sensitive, they're actually giving people power. It's the same kind of thing as you would treat a celebrity. And it messes celebrities up. It messes child actors up because everyone treats them a certain way. Yeah, you're giving them a power and a lot of times it's too much power and they can't even control. I don't know if I'm going off on tangent, but people that are overly sensitive, they're allowing and giving power to something they disagree with. It actually, it's like a hook in jiu-jitsu. If I resist a hook in jiu-jitsu, it actually gives more power to that hook. Use jiu-jitsu analogies, learn jiu-jitsu, and deal the same with people that d- disagree with you. It's like, it's okay to dis- disagree. Go with the hook. It's not the end of the world. It's not a big deal. I know you need to get some pizza, and by God, do I support that. And so, so my... my l- better be good pizza in Raleigh, bro. Oh, hey, there's, not, there's no good pizza here? Actually, actually, the best pizza, you know, in all seriousness, the best pizza in the area is either at Ruckus Pizza, which is sponsors a lot of local jiu-jitsu tournaments, or Toro or uh, Pizzeria Toro in Durham, which is uh, is awesome. Jason, I don't need pizza, but I really want pizza. And if you're a good friend, we're going to get pizza. Can you bring your can you can you bring your medal? Can you bring your medal? <laughs> yes. Am I doing? Are we doing a podcast with you later? If we do it, are we doing a podcast later? It is. We are, we're not going to talk about anything tangible. It's just going to be smack talking for, six, for 90 minutes. Because, well, I got four hours of <laughs> material, but we'll do, we'll do it in 90 minutes. Only, only, no, no, only four hours. That surprises me. Uh, so just two more questions. And the first is, one of the questions I always ask folks is, 
most of the people that listen to this podcast do jujitsu. And so I'm wondering, among students who've achieved a certain level of proficiency, like not experts or anything, but somebody that's got their blue belt, somebody that maybe had been training for a year, two years, what's the most common training mistake that you see either on the mats or off the mats? What, what, what big mistake that you see folks making that you wish they wouldn't make? Um, I mean, relaxation is always one. Not controlling your emotions. I think those are the top two. It's not a technical thing. I mean, that's up to your instructor. Um, I think you need to go in with an understanding that, especially in the beginning, that give it an honest try. If you allow your emotions to dictate things, it's like your parents dictating a five-year-old's, oh, he doesn't like it. You know what I mean? Like, so he doesn't like going to school. You're going to, you're going to take him out of school or like, he doesn't eat, like eating broccoli. So is he just going to eat hot pockets all day long? You know what I'm saying? I'm not an expert father. My, my kid's like one years old, but my point is, is, uh, control your emotions. Cause they're going to, they're going to, uh, misguide you. It's like the dark side in star Wars, man. You know what I mean? Like it'll betray you. Give it an honest try. Get in there. Learn how to desensitize yourself to these certain, these situations. If you don't give it that a chance. You're never going to go anywhere with it. Give it an honest try. To be honest, it's not a technical thing. Get in there, man. Anyone can do jiu-jitsu. Practically anyone. When people go, oh, it's not for me. What, being tougher, stronger, more situationally aware, learning how to control another human being that's trying to hurt you, those are not for you? I mean, I'm sorry. Maybe I'm crazy. I am a little crazy, but that's alien to me. I don't understand that. And I'm sure Purple Belt Non doesn't get it either because we just love it. Uh, but again, I think a lot of those are bad experiences, and I think there's so many good experiences out there. Don't let a bad experience, you know, dictate your future in uh, jujitsu. Last question. Is there anything that I haven't asked about that you wish I would have asked about or anything that you think it's really, really important for people to know? The other day I sat, I was doing work uh, before the trip, and... I don't know. I was tired. And I went to this Thai place. Isn't Thai food good, man? Mm. Went there to this Thai place, and this place is outstanding. Like, it's so good. And I go, she goes, what would you like? And I go, I don't know. What do you think I should eat? I go, just bring me something. And I never do that. I did that two, two days in a row. Went to the same place. Phenomenal. Had their pad thai the second day. Pad thai, right? Mm-hmm. Had their red curry the first day. It has nothing to do with jiu-jitsu. But sometimes, just trust. If it's a good place, trust them and say, bring me what you like. I really like doing that at restaurants. Anyway, I don't know if that... (laughs) Let's end with something that has no bearing on training at all. Anyway, I love it. Thank you so much for taking the time, Dave. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Yeah, that was awesome. I want to talk to you guys about Cageside Fight Company for a second. I've been buying from Cageside for more than six years, and about 99% of the gear that I use is from Cageside. That's not because other companies don't make good stuff. They do. It's just that Cageside offers the highest quality products at the best value and, no joke, the best customer service I've ever experienced in my life. So whether you're looking for shin pads, whether you're looking for Thai gear, whether you're looking for Brazilian jiu-jitsu gis or Valetudo shorts, whether you're looking for the coolest t-shirts around, check out Cageside.com or come into their fight shop at one. 24 Lotta Road, right in Durham, North Carolina. You won't be sorry. Another thing I want to mention about Cageside is they do more to support local fighters and local Brazilian jiu-jitsu competitors than just about anybody else. And so we've got to support the people that support us. Check out Cageside Fight Company, 124 Lotta Road in Durham, North Carolina, or online at cageside.com.
So that's the show for the week. Hopefully you got the chance to go out and train with Dave either at his seminar at Gracie Raleigh or when he taught at Forge Carry one night or you were able to take a private lesson with him. If not, I hope Dave will be back soon so you can get some of that knowledge. If you did miss out, Dave was gracious enough to record a technique for us on video, which we posted to our Facebook page and our website, dirtywhitebelt.com. If you want to check that technique out, it's a really cool standing guillotine from the clinch. So you can either go to our Facebook page, which please like and share that video, or you can go to dirtywhitebelt.com slash blog. All of our videos are archived on dirtywhitebelt.com. And so when we're able to have outstanding instructors come in and show us some stuff, we always like to do so. So my thanks again to Dave Camarillo, my thanks to Jason Colbreth, and my thanks to you for listening. Folks, we will be back at it next week recapping the pans. We're going to try and interview some of our local competitors from the pans, as well as a couple of fun surprises. So this is Dirty White Belt Radio. I'm Jeff Shaw, and thanks a lot for listening.